This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Massive open online courses, or MOOCs, are shaking up traditional models of education by offering free online university classes to hundreds of thousands of students around the world. Among the most active MOOC providers today is Coursera, a startup that presents some 200 courses to 1.5 million students in collaboration with 33 educational institutions, including the University of Pennsylvania. But how does Coursera deal with challenges such as scaling up the venture, increasing student retention rates, and monetizing free content? Knowledge at Wharton discussed these issues and more with Daphne Kohler, co-founder of Coursera, during her recent visit to campus. Uh, Daphne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, how does a massive open online course, or a MOOC as it is called, like those taught through Coursera, differ from the traditional educational experience? And what are the pros and cons? So if by the traditional education experience you mean the face-to-face teaching, um, I think that there are differences that um, vary based on what audience you're talking about. So these MOOCs, as they're called, have been offered separately both to the general public at large, but also as a way of transforming the educational experience of on-campus students. So in terms of the students and the general public, there is this um, tremendous opportunity for them to be exposed to the kind of knowledge that has until now only been available to a tiny sliver of the world's population. And they don't get the same experience necessarily as the on-campus students because they don't get that you know, one-on-one connection with the instructor. But on the other hand, um, the availability of the content is just a tremendously enabling experience for those students, and there's still a hugely interactive experience in terms of um, interaction with the material, which is not just video, there's also a lot of exercises and assessments, as well as this rich community that is based on, um, that is based around the material where students interact with each other in a kind of peer teaching format. At the same time, students on campus can benefit from that same content and have the experience of going and watching the content separately outside the classroom and then coming into class and having a lot more time for an active learning, interactive experience with their instructor. Let's just take a step back. How would uh, Coursera fit into the higher education landscape? Uh, Does a MOOC uh, uh, supplement uh, traditional learning as you just described? Or do you see it as a substitute as well? I think it depends on the population again. For those students who are privileged enough to be enrolled in an academic institution such as Wharton or Princeton or Stanford, um, there is uh, a tremendous opportunity to supplement the standard instruction and then again repurpose the classroom time for a much more meaningful and interactive experience. For a lot of students out there however they will never have access to this quality of education and so you can view this as a substitute for the education that they would have liked to have. Um, For many students that are taking our courses they are in fact already educated professionals. They have a degree, sometimes they have even an advanced degree but they would like to expand their minds and learn new things and they will never go back to school Um, whether for financial or geographical constraints, and this is a tremendous opportunity for them to learn something. So now I understand that uh, 33 institutions offer MOOCs through Coursera. That's right. Uh, And how many students have they served? 
So currently enrolled on the platform, we have over 1.5 million students um, that uh, are currently enrolled in, there's 5 million distinct course enrollments because students often enroll for more than one class. Um, a lot of these students have not yet been served because a lot of our close to 200 classes have not yet started to run. And so, um, uh, you know, I've, I think we've served hundreds of thousands of students uh, so far, but, you know, not the full 1.5 million uh, that haven't been enrolled. And what have you learned so far about um, participation, completion, and dropout rates of this online population? So one of the things that we see is that, you know, because enrolling is so easy, it's a matter of just clicking a button and it's free. A lot of students do that. Um, and then when it comes time for the course to actually begin, about 70% of them show up because maybe their life has moved on and they're now busy doing something else. Of the ones that show up, we see a bifurcation of the population. There are students who come in and they really are there primarily to just get the benefit of the content. They're just there to watch videos. And of those who start watching videos, about 30 to 40 percent continue watching the entire rest of the course to its completion, uh, with a sort of fairly constant drop-off rate week on week as students get busy and their life uh, imposes some challenges on them. Similarly, there is the second population, uh, those students who really do intend to take the course for real, and we kind of gauge that right now by seeing who submits the first assignment as an indicator. If you submit the first assignment, you maybe really do intend to take the class for real. And again, the retention rate for that population is comparable. It's about 30% of the people who start the first assignment complete the last one. Now, in terms of sort of overall what you might traditionally call retention, that is the number of students who submit the last assignment uh, relative to the population who initially enrolled for the course, that translates into a completion of 7% or so, 9% depends on the course. But that's really the wrong way of looking at it because many of these students never really intended to take the class in the first place. Right. Not for real. Right. So for example, I, I understand that the gamification course that was offered through Wharton uh, had about 70,000 people who enrolled mm -hmm. initially, but about 9,000 uh, completed it. Now, now that, that's quite a big gap. Right. Uh, what have you learned about the different kinds of courses where uh, you've seen greater success than others? I don't view 9,000 out of 70,000 to, uh, to be a bad statistic. Because I, I didn't like, say so. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a description, not a right. criticism. Um, you know, I think we're still starting, I mean, we don't have a sufficiently large sample size right now to gauge what um, makes for success and what doesn't. And in fact, one of the things that we've started to do is research that is intended specifically to try and determine what increases retention, what increases engagement. So we're now running a test in which students are getting encouraging emails once a week saying, oh, you know, you did so well in the last couple of uh, assignments and the next one is due tomorrow. Don't you think it's good if you log in and try and complete the next one? You don't want to break your streak. And we're doing an A-B test in the same way that Google does A-B tests in, in search quality to see whether that actually increases student engagement. And one of the really beautiful things about having such a large po uh, base of population that you can run these experiments and get statistically significant results so that we can learn how to improve the learning experience for our students. 
Now, some of the institutions that offer these courses offer credit and some don't. Uh, is, is, why does that difference exist? Uh, well, you know, as of now, only one institution offers credit. Uh, that's the University of Washington, and they're offering it for an enhanced version of the course where students have uh, interaction with the instructor and, and um, you know, some additional homework besides what's uh, available on the Coursera platform. I think that... You know, the granting of credit is a very sensitive issue for mm. um, institutions, and they need to think carefully about what makes a credit-bearing class and what doesn't. And this is such a new area, and this whole transformational change that we're seeing is so new. I mean, a year ago today, approximately, September or October of 2011, was when the first real MOOCs launched. And so, so much has happened since that we are still, I think, all of us as a community are just trying to assimilate the change and figure out where we want to take this. And I think over the course of time, more and more institutions will move into the credit arena with this, but um, it's too early, I think, to have that step taken. And do uh, any institutions offer certification also? So most of the institutions that we're working with have agreed to offer some kind of unofficial certification. Um, as I mentioned earlier, most of our population, right now at least, are people who already have a degree and f will never go back to school to get another one. And so for them, the question of whether the course carries credit is really of less relevant compared to whether they have a meaningful certificate that they can, for example, present to an employer to demonstrate competence uh, in a particular topic. And so I'm, I'm very pleased that most of the institutions have decided to offer that benefit to students, which allows them to really gain uh, something substantial for the work that they did. And is it Coursera that offers the certification or the institution, and is there any charge for it? So um, what we have been able to offer up to now is a what is often called a statement of accomplishment or um, something along those lines. And it is an unofficial letter from the instructor with the instructor's signature that does not carry any kind of university authorization. In the coming months, we uh, plan to be able to offer for some of the courses, and not from all institutions, a basically university-branded certificate that would carry the university brand, and it would say that this is an online, non-credit-bearing course so that to distinguish from the courses that the university offers its own enrolled students. Um, and so it will be a university brand certificate. It will also carry the Coursera brand somewhere, but in a clearly different role because the two roles are different. We, don't, we do not produce the content. We do not determine academic standards. Uh, when we begin to offer those, then yes, we, um, we believe there will be a charge for something that has, I think, such a substantial value to the students. But it won't be a huge charge. So when you have uh, certification, the question of assessment becomes very critical. Mm -hmm. uh, now, given the large volumes we have in these MOOCs, right. uh, I, I would imagine that would be quite a challenge. How have you dealt with that? So the question of assessment is one to which we have devoted extensive attention in our work because uh, we, not even primarily for the purpose of certification at the end, but because we believe that 
exercises for which one gets meaningful feedback, the so-called formative assessments, are a really critical part of the learning experience for the students. If you don't get feedback on how well you're doing, you really either don't do the work or you don't learn the material well because you don't know that you're not getting it. And so we've developed a fairly extensive set of exercises that can be graded automatically by the computer. And that ranges from the fairly mundane multiple choice or fill in the blank or numerical answers to some fairly in-depth assessments like uh, grading of programming assignments, of Excel spreadsheets, for example, for marketing or financial models, um, grading of mathematical expressions. And most recently, one of our biggest efforts uh, which we started to put out in the spring and has since gone out in, I think, nine classes or maybe even more, is the whole notion of peer grading where students critically assess each other's work, providing both a quantitative grade as well as qualitative feedback. And by combining ideas from the kind of peer review process that has been used in the education community with the crowdsourcing ideas that have been used in, in websites like Wikipedia, um, uh, where wisdom of the crowds is used to sort of uh, compensate for lack of expertise among uh, the people doing the work, we believe that we could actually put together something that provides students with meaningful feedback for the kind of open-ended work that is so critical, for example, in humanities and in business and in other disciplines. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly understand that peer-reviewed uh, uh, assessments uh, help to address the scale question. Right. Uh, but uh, isn't the absence of uh, feedback from a qualified instructor a limitation? So I think that clearly the answer is that in certain um, disciplines, in certain contexts, the the, it is a limitation. So, for example, I would not use peer review to grade 10,000 word essays where an instructor would be able to provide a real in-depth assessment of the quality of the work and give the kind of substantial feedback that only an expert can give. So I think um, it comes back to an important component of this that we, I think, um, discussed a little bit earlier, which is that this is not going to be an experience that is comparable to the experience that a student who attends an institution like the University of Pennsylvania in person gets. So there's going to be differences. And the question that we should ask ourselves isn't whether we are going to achieve equality between the students at the University of Pennsylvania and the students out in the general public, but whether by the use of technology we have improved the quality of the experience for each of them separately. So both of them are better than they were before, even if they're still not quite the same. Well, that's very interesting. And well, you, you said before that you know a lot of the people who take these courses are already professionals who mm -hmm. have degrees, and and that's fine. But there may be some uh, uh, young people as well who are trying to become mm -hmm. professionals. Right. Uh, how do you address issues in the case of such populations about things like verifying the student's identity mm -hmm. or plagiarism? Mm -hmm. How 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 have you dealt with those things? So first of all, um, to speak to just the, the um, assumption behind your question, I do think that as the mix of courses that we're offering changes to include more and more of these um, introductory or gateway classes, we're seeing uh, an increase in the population of you know 18 to 25 year olds and often even younger students from high schools who would like to, as you said, become professionals and, and, and get their degree. And, and so I think that's a really exciting direction because it is an important segment of the population to which you want to offer for high quality education. Um, you know, I think that 
There are a range of technological solutions that one can adopt in order to address issues of plagiarism detection and um, identity verification and reducing the amount of cheating. Um, keeping in mind, of course, that you will never be able to stop this entirely. And we have heard recently and in the past of incidents of uh, you know cheating and plagiarism on our own college campuses, including at the highest ranked institutions. Um, we have seen uh, incidents of cheating at the SAT exams, which are supposedly <laughs> the most proctored environment that one could have. So it's always going to be an arms race, and you're going to prevent some forms of cheating, and others will um, emerge to replace them. Um, so one has to keep one's expectations realistic. I do think, and there's been a bunch of uh, you know discussion about you know cheating in online courses um, on the web. Um, I think that to some extent those have been a little bit overinflated um, relative to the actual amount that takes place. So, uh, for example, our um, in the Princeton sociology class, the TAs graded every single one of the 2,500 or so midterms. They estimate the proportion of plagiarism at about 5%. Now, even if that's an underestimate because they didn't actually plug this through a plagiarism detector, so maybe it's double that, 10%. Is that really that much higher than what we see in our on-campus classes? Not clear to me. I'd love to uh, switch to some questions about the business model, sure. if you don't mind. No. Uh, Coursera is not the only MOOC initiative. I, I wonder how you compare your approach to that of edX or Udacity. So let me start from uh, the Udacity comparison, because I think that's a, a fairly easy comparison. Um, we are a technology platform that enables the best institutions to offer their education to the rest of the world. And we're not intending to become an educational institution on, in our own rights. We do not produce our own content. We rely on the content experts, which are some of the world's best instructors, to provide the content and set the academic standards. Um, and we do that by partnering with the institutions um, so that faculty can basically teach under their um, under the brand of their institution, with the support of their institution. And I think we get some really amazing um, material by having that relationship with some of the world's best universities. Um, so, um, so that's one comparison. Um, the, the edX initiative, in some respects, is more similar to what we're doing, because it's also an institutional level effort. Um, in this case, it's a, you know, consortium of two of, you know, the world's outstanding institutions, most recently joined by a third. Um, and I think that it's uh, wonderful for students around the world to have access to content from those universities as well. Uh, we personally are very uh, fond of this sort of notion of a broad consortium of peer institutions because not only do we think that it provides economies of scale because a single platform that is a fairly expensive and complicated thing to develop is now the cost of that is amortized over a much larger set of courses and, and institutions. We also see tremendous benefit to the hub of having, um, you know, a single place where people come for a very large amount of content. We have almost 200 courses right now and more coming up. And that's why we have 1.5 million students in Rising is because of that hub. In the same way that, you know, Amazon is a hub or iTunes is a hub. 
And then finally, I think an advantage that may be not quite as apparent from the outside, but you can clearly see it from the inside, is having this collaboration across institutions allows institutions to learn a tremendous amount from each other because this is a completely new paradigm in teaching. This is not standard instruction sort of videotaped and placed online as used to be the case. This is a, um, a real shift in how we teach and we're all kind of learning together. And by having a bunch of peer institutions that are all communicating with each other and, and learning, I think we're going to develop good pedagogy and good ways of ex exploiting this, uh, this new paradigm, this new medium, much, much faster. Since Knowledge at Wharton has been giving away free content and free knowledge for the past 14 years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, th this is a question that is very dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. uh, there is clearly a cost to producing the content. True. Uh, how do you plan to monetize your service? Uh, uh, presumably your investors are also interested in that. Yeah, let me say that there's not only a cost to producing the content, there's also a cost to hosting and disseminating the content. There's also Absolutely. a cost to developing the platform that does all that. So yes, there's costs all around and, and um, one of the decisions that we made was that recognizing these costs and recognizing that they are ongoing, we realized that we couldn't count on some miraculous uh, influx of funds from philanthropic foundations to keep us going indefinitely, which is why we decided we had to make it sustainable. And so we have several ideas on revenue models, all of which at this point remain to be tested because we're very, very new to this. Um, but one of them is one we touched on earlier, which is the potential to charge for certification. So even though we're committed to keeping the content free so that even a kid in Africa that doesn't have a credit card can still learn something to make their life better, if you get a certificate at the end that allows you to go and apply for a job and gives you some kind of tangible benefit, then that I think is a reasonable thing to charge for. Um, we think that we can get employers to put in money into the effort by getting access to the records of students who have taken some of our courses, only those who have opted in, of course. Um, and because there's some really amazing things about our student base. First of all, not only are they often educated, they're ones who have demonstrated the interest in, in, in continuing their education. So they're self-selected for some really good properties. Um, furthermore, employers would get much more quantitative and detailed information about those students than just their resume, which is what they say about themselves, but rather did they actually do well, both in hard skills, like on the exercises, but also on soft skills, like in helping each other on the discussion forum and in study groups. And so that's really important a type of information in the 21st century workplace for which I think employers would be willing to pay, and we've already had some interest from employers about that. Will the institutions who are part of Coursera also monetize their content in some way? So when we um, when we bring in revenue, the university gets part of it. We share the revenue back with the institution specifically to support content production. So let me ask, end with one last question. Okay. Uh, what's next for Coursera? And when I say next, let's look next five years, ten mm -hmm. years. So I think that um, in five years uh, we will be able to offer most of the curriculum in most disciplines. We're, we're now, um, what, eight months after starting off at 200 courses. Um, at 
typical institution, even a large one like Penn has something like 3,000 courses, um, you know, I think in five years we'll have 3,000 courses so that if you want to be educated as, uh, you know, as, as a mechanical engineer or as a business person or as a lawyer, you will be able to get access to some of the world's best courses and gain an education along those lines. I also think that in five to ten years from the perspective of the higher education ecosystem, people will look back on 20th century and say that I can't believe that we spend so much of our students' time shoveling them into auditoria and having them sit there for 75 minutes while somebody lectured at them when we all so clearly recognize and even recognize today that that's not the best form for getting people to really learn on the material and, and use it effectively. And so I think that our notion of what makes for a good education will shift drastically, I hope in five, but maybe it'll take 10 years. The old model has been good for teaching, but perhaps not so good for learning. So. I would say that the gold model has been good for scaling because up until now it was the only way that we had as a society to really convey that material to the larger number of students who came in through our institutional doors. But I don't think it's the right way to teach and, um, and what we would hope to be able to see is that by placing the content in a way that can be assimilated easily by students in an online format, we can go back to teaching the way it should have been. Okay. Well, well, good luck to you and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.